Yeah. Consider this question. Hmm. Consider this question. Consider this question. Consider this question. Consider this question. Hey, welcome to the podcast. This particular conversation was recorded on Tuesday, August the 18th, 2015. It's the second in a series of conversations about homosexuality in the culture and how to respond biblically. Specifically, we'll be talking about five common arguments for unqualified support and acceptance of homosexual lifestyles and how, as Christians, we look at the Bible and respond. Hope you find it helpful. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Consider This Question, um, a conversation here amongst Sunnybrook staff about culture and theology and the church. Um, we are on part two of a series we're doing on homosexuality right now, and I'm here with Jim Johnson, Morgan Weiss, Ryan Vincent. This is Drew Moss, I guess I should say. Um, we're about to discuss here today five of the most common arguments um, that are made for affirming same-sex behavior or, or the LGBTQ lifestyle. And, and I should kind of say from the beginning that this is not scientific. I didn't, I didn't take a poll. I didn't, uh, I didn't do a lot of research. But these are five arguments, as I've done a decent amount of reading on this and as I've been talking with um, people who either affirm or, or um, would identify themselves in this community who, who are dealing with this stuff, these are kind of the five most common arguments that I've seen come up. And so I want to talk through those a little bit and then specifically how you guys would respond to those arguments. Um, so we'll get into that. Um, first things first, though, I, I do think that it would be just healthy and, and, and maybe a little bit cathartic to just uh, publicly acknowledge that Jim Johnson was wrong last oh, week okay. on the and, podcast. And, and I was going, really? listen, before you, and I didn't know you were going on that beginning, but I was going to say, hey, before we get into, what did you call it, cathartic? Cathartic. Um, before we got into the carthos, um, the Greek word for <laughs> I'm sorry for being wrong. There he goes. Um, I went back, I listened to the podcast, and... Uh, Ryan was the most explicit. I actually, I, I counted the different ways that you described it and you'd used, I think, sin twice and unrighteous once. And um, so you I used a number of different, yes, yes. So you, you did a great job. Drew, you did use it once. Morgan, I was right on, but I was Ooh. very wrong against Ryan. I was a little bit wrong against Drew and I was completely right about Morgan. Except <laughs> for the fact that when you ask all of us the same question and someone already gives an answer, why would we just repeat each other's answers wow. and take up people's time to do that? You know, Carl she Truman is, once con, once said that he is very concerned that we are a little too silent on culture's favorite sins. And so I think you just get it out there. Yeah. Okay, we'll start with that. I believe homosexuality is a sin. There you go. So, and more importantly, Jim was wrong. <laughs> This concludes uh, right. this I, episode I, of the I, podcast. I, we will see you next week. <laughs> I admit it. I was wrong. I was wrong. All right. For reals now. Um, here are kind of the five most common arguments. And this first one, actually, Ryan already hit on uh, a little bit last week. And so I just want to give you a chance to kind of recap. It's, it's not so much maybe an argument as much as kind of the prevailing uh, attitude or perspective of the culture on, on this idea and, and on a lot of ethical things, actually. And that is simply... Um, it is hateful or, or bigoted to not accept a person as they are. So if, if I am 
uh, gay, if I identify as gay, or if I identify as transgender, and, and you as the church or you as a Christian come and tell me you should not do that, um, that's hateful, that's unaccepting, mm-hmm. that's unloving. So uh, talk a little bit about what you, you mentioned last week and maybe anything else you may want to touch on. Yeah, it, I mean, it really is this this way of thinking that's becoming increasingly um, increasingly widespread, uh, and, I, and I can really only speak for the American context, but I, I just I feel that um, there is this this general idea that if I can't affirm everything, and, I, and I'll, I'll set aside for a second everything you believe, but if I can't affirm everything you feel that you are or that is intrinsic to your identity, it is it is often received or um, perceived as as hate speech, as as bigotry, as like the closest thing to racism that isn't racism, and and it's it's a complicated matter to deal with because you touched on this last week. So many of of those who um, who, who sympathize with the kind of the, the culture's position on homosexuality or same sex attraction and behavior. They, they do so because they feel that it is very, um, very central to someone's identity as a human being, that it is a fundamental human right to express sexuality in whatever way you please. And, and you even mentioned in the last show that that, that that idea is growing more and more over the last number of decades. But it, what, what, what we do or what, what it looks like we're doing whenever we speak against um, a homosexuality or same-sex attraction it, it it looks like it, it just seems mean which is going to rub against the 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 kind of the hearts of many high schoolers and college students and i would say if you could generally say 40 and under there's a strong sentiment of you just can't be mean to people like that and that and to to not be nice to not accept and affirm is one of the most hateful things you can do and uh, and it's difficult for us to navigate because what I what I, I what I know that I'm not doing is I'm not attacking the man or the woman himself. It's what I believe is a brokenness in them that deviates from how God designed them. And so, in many ways, the any any criticisms I would have or any concerns I would have, it's it's ships passing in the night in terms of how I express that and how it's perceived. Yeah, because we believe technically that. Or officially, we believe that a person's identity is is a lot bigger than their sexual feelings or orientation, mm-hmm. right? And so we're not when 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 we speak against a specific sexual activity or or your feelings about your gender or whatever, we believe we're not we're not talking about all that you are and and the person that mm-hmm. that God created you to be in His image. Um, we're speaking against a- actions on those, Jim. Well, I mean, and <clears throat> another fundamental difference between those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ and those who are not beginning from that presupposition is that we think our identity is actually broken without God yeah. mm-hmm. and broken without Christ. So it's not just an identity that is just kind of naturally who I am. It's interesting because I've already been in one conversation today uh, going back and talking about what our, um, what our, what our natural tendency is. And as followers of Jesus yes. Christ and understanding the Bible without getting into the whole total depravity debate, and the truth is, is that on both sides of, of that question, we still believe that a person apart from the Holy Spirit and apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. is lost and their identity is broken. And it's funny how we totally start on a completely different place. Yeah. And if we were to just go back and affirm, yes, everyone apart from God and apart from Christ has a broken, yep. self-centered identity. 
and we all need to begin there. Yeah. Um, I think that begins to at least change the conversation. Now, all of a sudden, instead of it being just a matter of hateful or singling out, it's yeah. like, no, nope, I don't care what your orientation is. I don't care what your, uh, what your color of your skin is. Everyone or your gender, every one of us, apart from the Holy Spirit and apart from his working of grace in our lives, is fundamentally in rebellion against God, broken, messed up, and in need of him. I would also say, too, that um, when you, as a Christian, one of the things you'll have, I think that you'll have a lot of people say to you is, um, God is love, and he's all about love, and this I, you'll have love brought up a lot, too, not just you're hateful for the sake of that you don't agree, but also how dare you do that? You serve a God who is supposed to be loving and accepting and those sorts of things. And I think that we need to be really careful um, as people who follow the Lord that our definition of love isn't just shaped by culture's definition of love. Mm-hmm. And so that also is a is a biblical concept. The Bible does have a lot to say about what love is and what love looks like. And sometimes it looks like um, disciplining a wayward sinner. And sometimes it looks like throwing your arms around a prodigal who comes home. And so it looks like a lot of different things than what culture's idea of it is. And so I think that's really important. Um, and then I also think if you can kind of see through the question, that's kind of an, uh, will be an important um, tool in helping you answer the question, which is this idea that, yeah, the God we serve is, is a God of love. He's a very loving God, but that does not make a sexual sin okay. Like, yep. actually, those things don't don't have anything to do with one another. And so I think that's really, really important to be able to kind of dissect that a little bit. And I also think that it's really helpful to, you know, one of, one of my favorite ways of teaching or communicating a difficult idea is to throw myself down on the altar and, and lift up myself as an example. And, and I'll say it, it's helpful whenever you're having this conversation with someone. To say, you know, I've, I've, you know, I'm a heterosexual male that has never had struggles with same-sex attraction, yet that doesn't mean that there's less of me for God to transform. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that I am not equally broken, just in different ways, and in, and I must rely on the grace of the Holy Spirit to do a work in my heart. And it's, it's no different than someone. It, it perhaps it's different because I haven't wrapped my identity up in my sexuality, and that's where it feels different. Yeah, but. Um, ontologically or at, at, at the very root level, it's not different. Yeah, that's and that's really good. That actually even kind of leads into um, this second major argument, touches up against it a lot, and that is um, really an argument from um, from people's experience a lot. That is, um, this is who I am, and I can't I can't help that, or I can't change that. What what you see when you watch um, watch or read things on Bruce Jenner is is him saying like I've I've always known from the time I was younger when I've talked to um, family members or friends personally um, when when I've uh, read blogs of, of former colleagues or friends and, and what they almost all have in common is like from the time I was young I've had these feelings of same-sex orientation or I've had these feelings that I was a woman um, and and often even uh, especially if they grew up in church accompanied by things like I have prayed for years for God to change this in me I've, I've stayed up late at night sobbing and ask him to change it and he just hasn't done it so if if he's not changing it in me mm-hmm. then why are you so quick to want to change it yep. in me um it, it it's who i am so so how do you kind of how do you speak to that a little bit like i said you touched on it but but a little yeah. bit more on that ryan well this we're getting we're getting into the issue of nature versus nurture right mm-hmm. is are these feelings are they inherent in us or are they learned from a culture or how you were raised or whatever 
and, and there are people that land very, very hard on both sides. And, and I, I don't know that we necessarily need to pit those against one another, but I always like to ask this question. Was, did my son need to learn how to lie or how to push children down and take their toys? Or was that just some innate brokenness in him? Like he's two years old. His mom and I never taught him how to lie. Yet he's he's getting very good at it. Yeah. And he and I never showed him how to push somebody down and take their toy. But yet he's very good at it. There's a brokenness in him that I can't excuse, but I can recognize he is born this way. And, and one day I really hope that he meets the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit can begin to work on that. So it is, it, it is complicated when someone says like, I've, "This is just how God made me." I would say, I don't know if that's. That's not your imago Dei. That's not the image of God in you. But it is the brokenness of the world in you. And I, and I don't know that I can argue with you that you when you say, I was born this way. Because I think that the Bible is quite clear that we are born broken. We're born into a broken world. And so whenever, whenever someone comes up and says, you know, this is just who I am, I would say, sure, apart from Jesus. I mean, I would be really broken too and, and still am in many ways. But that doesn't that doesn't give me a pass on these things, and it doesn't give me a pass on Romans 12, 1, where I am called to be transformed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is this really goes back to what you said just a bit ago, Jim, that separated from Jesus, our, our identities, our most natural tendencies are broken. And and that's a that's a theological response to our identity. Yeah. You know, we could look for a genetic response. Um, sure. And, and, I, and I've, I've read for decades now, I've been reading things regarding whether or not it's a genetic issue, whether or not it's a, I was genuinely born this way. Uh-huh. Um, and I've read very interesting articles on both sides of that debate. Um, I don't know. It's, it's the nature versus nurture. I don't know if we'll ever get to a final answer to that um, mm-hmm. on this side of eternity. Um, and therefore, I, th- I think it's it's not something that needs to be just discarded. Well, let's just not talk about it. No, let's keep it on the table. Let's keep it as part of that particular conversation because I think it deserves um, adequate response and adequate reflection. Yeah. Um, and yet let's remember that the Bible offers the kind of the, the major paradigm for us to go through. Yeah. And therefore, I'm going to always resort back, not because it's just my training, but because it's the deepest sense of who I am, that there is a theological answer to my identity more than a psychological um, and even more than a yeah. genetic or a scientific understanding of my identity. I do. And, and, and from, from uh, speaking personally, maybe not for the group, and, and I'm not... I'm not a biologist by any means, but I, I really do, I'm okay with, and it does seem to be that it, um, some people are born with a greater tendency towards these feelings, that some men seem tend to be born maybe feeling a little bit more effeminate in those things, but, um, but like you said, I, I really do believe that um, we're all born with, I, I really do believe I was born with a natural desire, my personality to please people, often often to the point in which I, I disobey God because I'm trying to please people or I base my identity on and what they say about me other than him. Um, that, that goes to the root of who I am as far back as I can remember. And yet I don't know if the natural tendency in me is, is, has any say as to whether that's moral or immoral. It just is what it is, and I still work within that. Um, here, here's kind of the third one, and, and this is one that I've, I've heard thrown around um, more recently in years, but that is that the Bible prohibits a lot of different things that we disregard today. Specifically, if you go to like Leviticus and uh, the conversation, Leviticus 18 is is the primary place where we see the prohibition against same-sex behavior. It's 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 actually a chapter that, that talks about all kinds of different sexual immorality, and it talks against adultery and incest and bestiality, but it also says you shall not 
lie with a man as one lies with a woman, that is an abomination. Um, but the argument goes, yeah, just a little earlier in Leviticus, though, it says you shouldn't eat pork. It says you shouldn't eat shrimp or, or um, wear garments with two different kinds of fabric, and, and Christians disregard those all the time. So isn't that, isn't that inconsistent to live that way? Isn't it, isn't it um, picking and choosing which you're go- going to follow in those? So how do you, Morgan, how do you respond to that? I, one of the things I would say is we don't get to choose what we discard and what we don't discard. We look at Scripture as a whole book. And we have to decide what scripture says about what we should do and what we shouldn't do. So when you're talking about the laws, um, there are different laws in scripture. And I'll let one of you guys kind of talk about those things. But that's the that's kind of the biggest thing I would say is just that we don't get to go, oh, well, because we there are some things we don't do. Let's just decide what we want to do and, and not to do. And I would say we have faulted in that in a lot of ways. And we have disregarded things that the Bible says are sin, and we have disregarded them as if that that's okay to do so. And that's making this specific issue that we're called on that's good. Um, a big deal because it's kind of in my face. I'm having to think through sin in my life and how I've kind of um, ranked sin and how I've kind of disregarded my own sin. Like even when you're talking about pleasing people, um, if I say my sin, you know, I was born with a desire to please people and you're talking about how that's a sin, people are going to weight those differently yeah. than a desire with same sex attraction. Yeah. They're going to feel like, yeah, but this one's like a, you know, a, a wrong, it's a desiring the wrong thing. Um, and it's even the wrong kind of sin, you know, it's yeah. kind of like, oh yeah, everybody struggles with jealousy. Everybody struggles with greed. Everybody struggles with lying. Um, so really we're talking about something that's different and I, there are some differences for sure, but they are all sinful. And I think yeah. we need to take all sin very seriously. Now, specifically with this issue though, I think there, we don't determine that eating meat's okay ourselves. We look at scripture to, to determine that. So, yeah. Yeah. So talk about, talk about that for just a bit, Ryan, because what she's saying is true. We want to make sure that we hold up. Um, when when the Bible calls something sin and the church calls it sin, we want to make sure that we're we're treating everything sinful sure. that way. But there, these are things eating pork that the church says now you can do it now. Yeah, you yeah. know eating trip you can you can go ahead and do that. Why do we say that about about Leviticus laws, but we don't say it about this specific Leviticus law about same sex yeah. behavior? Well, very specifically, Jesus just he he said that now all foods are clean. Did the same thing again with Peter in Acts. And so the, to answer that very one specific law, but what, what helps is to differentiate the types of laws in the Old Testament and the reason for which they were given. So you have both moral and ceremonial law, and the ceremonial law had a whole lot to do in, in terms of uh, how, how God was to be worshipped in that specific context with that specific people group. Um, living in, amongst the people groups that they were, and and if you if you go and look through the, through the sections where the law is actually given in Leviticus and again in Deuteronomy, you'll see a refrain. Why were many of these laws given? So that you would live long in the land. What land? Like I, I here's here's my question. What land are they talking about? Well, I don't live in Canaan two thousand years ago, four thousand years ago. So there are many of these laws that God gave. For have you ever wondered why shellfish, why pork? They they are seemingly arbitrary, and and some people will make cases for like health reasons, and and I'm even willing to entertain that for a little bit. But I think primarily it's to set apart for himself a holy nation that yeah. is different, that is distinguished, and that is marked out against 
the Canaanites, against the Philistines and, and everybody else that's in that area. And so there's a reason why these laws were given, and there's a reason why Jesus came, when he came to fulfill the law, is that he said, I'm going to set you apart in a different way. I'm going to mark you out as holy, as separate ones, differently. And it's not going to be because you, you do or don't eat something or you live in a certain place. It's, it's going to be because I'm going to mark you with my spirit. Yeah. And so all of a sudden we, we, we look at these ceremonial laws, which we could very really, I think very truly say, were given for a different era or a different, to excuse the loaded word, a different dispensation of God's people. Like this was just a different time. Contrast that, however, with the moral law, which I believe was given very much to reflect God's character and yeah. how he wants those who bear his image to reflect his holiness and, and his sense of right and wrong and justice. So moral laws being things like um, not just our sexual ethic, but our sexual yeah, ethic, yeah. but also um, caring for the poor, loving yes. your neighbor. Yep. Um, the way we, the way we um, uh, love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, those are these things that reflect his character and nature and carry over Yes, and those are the things that Jesus affirms in the New Testament yeah. when the church is being inaugurated. He, these are the things that he says, these are not gone. If anything, Jesus is going to make them deeper and more complicated. The Sermon on the Mount takes a lot of Old Testament laws that have a lot to do with just practice and says, now I'm going to make it about the heart. Yeah. And yeah. so it's not that they're excused, it's that they are intensified in many ways. Yeah, good. Um, I would, I would kind of even state on that, you know, the ceremonial laws were a constant reminder that God is holy, and unless we take care of these ceremonial things that he's asking us to do, sacrificing a lamb, we can't come into his presence. Mm -hmm. um, those, were, those were a constant reminder of God's holiness and our sinfulness. And we believe as New, as New Testament Christians, as people who follow that, that that Jesus, through his crucifixion, takes care of all of those and makes access for us. And so there's no longer need to sacrifice animals or avoid shirts with two kinds of garment and, and all these ceremonial things. We are made holy before him. And so I think that's big. Well, and you know, here's, here's a, something alongside of this, which is where the church has failed is that um, on mass, we don't explain this way of looking at the Bible. So when Morgan is describing... Like we don't pick and choose, or if we do, we're wrong when we do so. Mm -hmm. And so as leaders in the church, as those, whether it's a children's ministry or whether it's youth ministry, college or adult ministries, we need to go back and give our people the right uh, interpretive framework to look at life and to look at the Bible. Um, so we'll confess when we've misappropriated um, our understanding of the text to somehow exclude the ones that we're either blind to or that we're openly accepting those sins, which are wrong. Yeah. Um, and we need to be able to, to explain to people how we got to the conclusions we just had, you know, yeah. because I, I, I dare say for, for those that even listen to this podcast, I bet you a number of them right now are thinking, wow, that's good. That really helps me understand how to answer that question, which means they may have been attending church for decades and have, have never actually even heard that explanation. Yeah. And so for those of us who've gone to college, for those of us who've, who've studied the Bible at this level, who are looking for that kind of um, uh, interpretive integrity, um, we know that. Um, and we need to share that, starting with, the, uh, with our orange philosophy of helping families be able to explain it to their kids. I think uh, instead, of, instead of just buying into, yeah, you're right, we're all hypocrites. Yep, yep, the church does right. do selective stuff. Um, or selective uh, interpretation, selective application of Bible verses. Uh, we need to confess when we're wrong, and we need to teach a more consistent yeah. way of looking at the Scriptures as a whole. We can't let neglect lead excuse more neglect. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So 
Um, okay, number four real quick, and, and here we get into a little bit more. Um, this one a little bit, especially five, into more kind of scholarly debate. But number four is a big one, and that uh, says basically Jesus never spoke against homosexuality. So the argument is the Son of God comes, and he lives here on the earth for 33 years, and, and he, he has a ministry for about three years where he travels around preaching and teaching and never hits on this topic. So if it wasn't all that important to him, why is it so important to his followers? How would you respond to that, Jim? I think there are uh, there are two ways in which I've responded to it in the past. The first one is that uh, to look at Jesus like that, which I, I get. I mean, the, the, the way that I first remember hearing this story is that there is a guy uh, who picks up a tract and it says on the outside um, everything that Jesus says against homosexuality or about homosexuality. Um, and then you open it up and it's just blank on the yeah. inside and you're just, oh, wow, that's so deep. Well, it's it's deep if you're shallow. Yeah. It truly, it's. I mean, it's a it's a a bit of a manipulative tool. There are lots of things that Jesus, you know, uh, doesn't say about certain things. He really doesn't say anything about domestic violence. Yeah, right. Doesn't say yeah. anything about it. But then we would say, oh no 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 no. He says that we need to love one another. Oh okay. So then you're taking a a general large picture term, mm-hmm. and then you're wanting to know specifics. Oh yeah. well, yeah yeah. And so uh, racism. Jesus speaks nothing about racism. Particularly, particularly between, say, um, uh, white and black. Uh, well, no, no, no. He says a lot about it. He, you know, we, we go to John 4 with the Samaritan woman. Okay. But really, he didn't say anything there about racism. He just showed kindness to. Yeah. So if you're, if you're fine with the Jesus speaks in the general and then we read into it the specifics, yes. well, then I would say two things are true. The first one is, is that Jesus's assumption with his population? What what was his uh, the basic agreed upon understanding regarding homosexuality? And maybe one of the reasons, and I would argue this is actually true, is the reason why Jesus didn't have to address it is because it wasn't up for question. Yeah, yep. there was nobody. Um, there, Rob Bell had not been invented yet, and so he wasn't producing books and uh, and and trying to offer an alternative way of looking at the Orthodox Jewish perspective yeah. um, on this particular issue. There, and by the way, there there were things that were under debate, and Jesus did address those. But if this was not being basically, you're asking, did Jesus debate things? people weren't debating. Yeah. And the answer to that is no, Jesus didn't debate these things. Um, and I would say, therefore, then what was the common understanding yes. regarding homosexuality and the common understanding that came from the Levitical law uh, that has been held um, with, within the Jewish context to the time of Christ was that Leviticus was right and that homosexuality was a sin and therefore was not part of the accepted behavior around them. So therefore I wouldn't necessarily, well, I, I just, I wouldn't expect him to address it. He doesn't, he doesn't explain drug use. Um, uh, so there's lots of different issues that he doesn't address because the culture doesn't address it. And the second thing I would say is that, and this is probably equally true, is that he does address it when he starts talking about sexual sins, that even their concept of sexual sins in which he says are inappropriate or wrong, um, using the terminology, whether that be pornea or other, uh, other words, it would have fit inside that category. And so even though the word was not used, uh, yeah. or even as we talk about um, the modern understanding of same-sex committed monogamous monogamous relationships, even though that concept didn't it was was didn't exist. The truth is, is that when Jesus is speaking uh, in in generalities, because it's culturally assumed, or in generalities, uh, labeling one particular uh, or 
labeling the the overarching sexual sin category, it would have fallen underneath that in terms of their understanding. So I would say, A, Jesus didn't speak about it because everybody agreed upon it. Mm -hmm. Specifically. Specifically. Or Jesus actually did kind of talk about it, except he used a different word for it. Um, and therefore, it, again, fit under that that same category. Yeah. So you're saying, you know, when a, when a Jewish rabbi stands up in the first century in speaking to a Jewish you're audience, gonna, you're going to essentially say this better than I did. Thank you, Drew. Appreciate <laughs> yeah. that. And so, but if he says, <laughs> "Don't steal," yes, like they all their definition goes back to what did the law say about That's stealing? Yes. That's yes. how we know. That's great. Yes. And yep. so That's when helpful. he says. Um, that sexual immorality makes you unclean yes. in your heart, then all of them, their mind goes, what does the law say sexual immorality is? Yes. And that's and Leviticus. Leviticus 18. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, Jesus didn't talk about all of the sexual sins. Um, he doesn't talk about incest. Yeah. I mean, literally, think about the number of categories it, within the sexual sins yeah. category, and he doesn't mention any of those. Yeah. Yep. And, um, oh, I shouldn't say that. He does mention adultery. But, but think about the number of ones he doesn't mention yeah. that they're in the Levitical law. They're inside the cultural concept, and they are actually inside the word specifically that he's using. Sure. Yeah. And, and, and not to belabor this question, but one of the things that it's even important to remember the spectrum of perspectives that Jesus is speaking to. So you can, Morgan might say, well, Ryan, like Jesus never says anything against homosexuality. I, and I could counter with, well, he did speak out against sexual immorality. And she could say, but that's general. That's not homosexuality specifically. And then you, I mean, to, to just, it, expand this this conversation morgan would then the burden of proof would be on her to tell me what would a herodian a pharisee a sadducee an essene or a zealot have thought sexual immorality would have meant because that's the spectrum of jesus's first century audience the herodians would not have cared they were very sexually liberal if you want to use that term but everybody else jesus's primary audience pharisees and common jewish people would have said oh and there's also a Jewish way of, of quoting or alluding to the Old Testament where I only need to quote or allude to a part of it. And the, uh, the Jewish understanding is I am referencing the entire text. That's how Matthew quotes. Uh, if you go through Matthew's gospel, when he references something and starts to declare it as a prophecy fulfilled, he only needs to pick out a piece or a verse or a small line from an entire section of Isaiah. And everyone of his early it. first century readers would have said he's quoting Isaiah's message at large. So yeah. I only need to reference sexual immorality and the Jewish mindset would say Leviticus 18 as a package. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. So he did address it. Yeah, he yeah. did. Yeah. Um, all right, last one. And, and this is, as I said, this is probably more scholarly than maybe most of our listeners are talking about. But when, when it's being debated um, in journals and stuff like that, this is where a lot of it is. And it basically goes like this. Yes, the Bible speaks against homosexuality. And there's really no debate on that. Um, Romans 1, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 1, and as we said, Leviticus 18. And so there's, there's no way around those, but the, the primary argument goes that, that when Paul is writing about those things in the New Testament, he is not referring to monogamous, loving, same-sex relationships, that, that in fact he wouldn't have even known about those in the first century. Um, that primarily what you're talking about is almost abuse forms of that, pederasty between uh, an adult and a child, um, uh, an owner using a slave for sexual pleasure, rape, things like that, maybe temple prostitution. And so when Paul says, you know, you shouldn't commit homosexuality, that's what he's talking about. If he had known about loving same-sex relationships like we do today, he would have been fine with that. He would have affirmed that. So, Jim, how do you speak to that? 
Well, first of all, I would I would ask the question: How do you know that Paul would have accepted it if that had been the case? And I, I would say one of the primary ways, and the text that people go to um, would be the First Corinthians five material, in which Paul is confronting a congregation that is celebrating something that is not considered even socially acceptable at that time, which is taking your father's wife for yourself. Um, and so uh, Paul confronts that. And it's interesting that if Paul's paradigm is one of um, love and acceptance and understanding and saying, hey, listen, here, here's the problem. Um, the, the, the problem is, is that you're not genuinely loving her, that you're not genuinely caring for her, um, that this situation can, in fact, be redeemed through love and through understanding and acceptance. Um, that's not what he says. He just says, hey, this is wrong. This is wrong behavior. It's not like all behaviors are okay, and the problem is you're using it in a self-destructive way. This is kind of one yeah. of the one of the questions: is that uh, in the end, these things, when um, are not in themselves destructive or even in violation against God's plan or God's purpose, mm-hmm. what they are is they are being manipulated and used for our uh, own benefit, and that's kind of the destructive nature of them. And if that becomes the case, then I think Paul's response or even Jesus's response would have been, uh, say, in the First Corinthians five material, is listen. Um, if you are going to take this person who you should not take uh, as your wife, is if you're going to do that, make sure you love her. Make sure that you remain committed to her. Yeah. Um, it begins to kind of segment uh, whether or not something is truly moralistically wrong or incorrect. Um, we, you don't have that for adultery. Listen, adultery is wrong, but hey, if you're going to commit adultery, make sure that it's a monogamous adultery. Make yeah. sure that it's a yeah. loving kind of adultery. If you're going to be involved um, with your slave, make sure that it's monogamous exploitation yeah. of a slave. I mean, uh, it, it, it really doesn't answer the question ultimately. It really just kind of begs it. It really just kind of says, um, since Paul doesn't know of this, he would have accepted it. Yeah. And I would ask the question, I mean, again, I'm, I'm not afraid to, to kind of walk through that. I think it's good for us to even have that conversation. Um, I think it does not address the primary issue, which is, and, and I would, I've been arguing this for a long time, it's why we need to go back and understand how to use not just Leviticus in terms of laws or even Romans in terms of Paul's understanding of how to use laws, uh, but Paul feel, felt very comfortable. Jesus seems very comfortable going back and saying, well, let's just look at Genesis 1 yeah. in terms of the design, in terms of the answer to how things worked. And so that's where I would answer that question is even though Paul doesn't know about it, I think Paul would then argue the same way he argues other thing, which is let's go back at Genesis 1 or even let's go back to Genesis 3 yeah. and see how the fall took place. Sure. And I think we're uncomfortable. First of all, I think that's a complicated way to interpret or even to look at the scriptures, mm-hmm. but it's the way the Bible itself looks at the scriptures. Therefore, we need to go back and look at Genesis 1 and Genesis 3 Genesis three, and see how we can interpret it properly yeah. in that way. So just because Paul doesn't know about it doesn't mean that he would openly embrace it. It's almost the assumed. Yeah. He doesn't know about it, therefore he would. How do you know he would? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you can't, you can't say that Argue he would. Argue from silence. Yeah, you cannot make arguments from silence. Like Paul would have not known of a racial genocide, therefore he might have supported the Holocaust. Likely not. Yeah. By yeah. the way, that would have been his own people. But yeah, likely not. Like you can't argue from silence like that, especially when there are compelling areas that are speaking to this. You can't use silence to ignore what isn't silent. Yeah. And and I I personally would would think I the 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 language in Romans 1 that that really comes to me a lot is a general that is he doesn't specify little things like exploitation and mutuality. Yeah. So it says that when women exchanged um, natural relationships with men for relations with one another, burned in lust for one another, um, 
it, it has that one another idea and that mutuality and, and the and the penalty it says that comes on people in this is is plural for for both. But sure. also even actually there there are people who point out um, we have very little evidence of sexual exploitation or pederasty or anything in um, lesbian relationships in the first century. That almost every time you see it, it's a yeah. mutual, loving, same-sex relationship. Yep. And Paul condemns it in Romans 1, condemns a loving, same-sex relationship mm-hmm. between a woman and a woman. And then he compares relationships with, between two guys to the same thing. And so I, I, think that he, I think Paul did know about it and spoke against it. And even if he didn't, as you said, the argument from silence doesn't go there. But, but I, I think he did know and still yeah. spoke against it. Well, and in, in history records that homosexuality with, between men was, was, quite, um, was quite accepted in the Roman military. It was actually a tactic for the, like, the elite of the elite to make sure, like, if I can get you to fall in love with him, then you will, you will fight for him better in battle. It, it's a Roman, like, it, it, was, it was in the Roman military. Paul spent a lot of time around Roman guards. You cannot tell me that he didn't understand like a mutual same-sex uh, mm-hmm. behavior that was not exploited. That wasn't exploited. Good. I think too, God gives us <clears throat> things that are good, and we, when we approach them in the wrong ways, that becomes sin. And so, sex is one of those things. And God is, and, and it's very, very evident. Like, like you were saying, like Jim was saying that. Throughout Scripture, the the appropriate context for sex would be in a in a covenant relationship between a man and a woman. That's clear. That's very clear. So every other kind of sexual relationship at all is always condemned in Scripture. Mm-hmm. It's never upheld as another option ever, and that's any kind. And so when people try to take a Romans one text, and what they do is they say, well, actually, it's the inflamed with lust for one another. So it's just a wrong kind of way to approach homosexuality. No, actually, um, anything outside of man and a woman in a covenant relationship in marriage is, is upheld as wickedness and wrong and corrupted. Yeah. And so it's never, the Bible never, ever, ever has anything good to say about a man um, in a committed relationship with another man. Yeah. It doesn't. And so I think that's just really important to yeah. know it, I, I think it's it might be tim keller i don't i don't recall in uh in sam albury's book who's quoted as saying we don't get to um we don't get to excuse our sins by uh, like holding out the faithfulness that we have in our sins like faithful <laughs> sin is not therefore okay bitter sin yeah mm. yeah that's good They're good um Anything, like I said, this was unscientific, and so I'm kind of throwing out what, what I encounter a lot. Anything else you guys would add? Any other argument that you see? I know we'll have more time to be talking about. We, we'll, we'll do at least another one of these episodes and stuff. But Yeah, so this is like a series you're saying, Drew. Yeah, this is a multi-part <laughs> series. A multi-part series. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I thought those five were really good. I think they're the ones that I'm constantly dealing with when I'm uh, wrestling with it personally uh, or sharing it with a staff or with uh, with somebody that's going through them. These, these seem to be the... The ones that keep coming back. Okay, I would. Okay, no, no. I would say just two things. One, when we talk about, whenever we talk about feeling like being born this way, I would encourage you, um, if you're dealing with someone that's going through that, that it's not just a, uh, this isn't fair, how unfair, and it's not just this light issue. It's it's a it it's a very deep identity issue and that the Bible does speak really clearly about being born again and what that means and that you do receive the power of the Holy Spirit and that you there is hope there and that you can overcome who you who you used to be and so I do think that's important to know and then I would also 
just kind of warn people that like to talk about the issue for the purpose of not having to pick a side, I guess, on the issue or take any sort of stance on the issue. Jim was teasing us last week for not, you know, quote unquote, talking about sin and calling it sin. And I would just warn you to uh, kind of give you a warning that don't say hesitation equals patience with someone else. Like we should just keep talking about it because because it's such a deep, complicated issue. Yeah, you should keep talking about it. That doesn't mean you, d- you negate what scripture says. It doesn't mean you don't take a stance on it. And so I think that's really, really important that you that you do that. And so I don't think um, not talking about it or talking about it is the problem. I think sometimes talking about it can, well, you've said this before, death by um, dialogue, yeah. death by dialogue. I think yeah. that can, that will happen to a lot of people in the church that feel stuck on the issue. It's so a good reminder. Just, good a, reminder. just very specifically, uh, when we tolerate um, doctrine that affirms homosexuality, like that we believe that people are, are going to go further away from God because of that. Yeah. That's not something that we play with. So, you know, and, and kind of, we're you know wrapping up yep. here. Um, I probably should also, I got one other confession. I have actually been teaching Ryan's son to, to push other kids. So, <laughs> so it just it wasn't natural. It, I don't, it I don't know natural. if it was. I mean, it's, it, might, it might be both. Listen, it might be. I'm not saying it was. I'm just saying sometimes I have actually taught him There's to There's a little more nurture push. than nature. There is. There is so. At least some nurture, I just yeah. feel The lying, like. I'll just attribute to his own wickedness. There, there you go. Yeah, I have not taught him to lie. Okay. Appreciate it. <laughs> All right. We uh, hope that this has been helpful to you. And uh, if nothing else, you know to not let Jim around your kids. (laughs) Um, But we'll be back probably next week talking a little bit more about this. Next time.